Hi, I'm Andrew, and this is Keen on Democracy. Over the last 10 years, I've been involved in an ongoing debate with the prominent blogger and social media personality Jeff Jarvis about the impact of the internet on democracy. Jarvis is the author of the best-selling book, What Would Google Do?, as well as the New York City-based director of the Tao Knight Center for Entrepreneurial Journalism at CUNY. And he's one of the internet's most articulate cheerleaders who has, over the last decade, consistently argued that the digital revolution has enriched democracy. So, to kick off our conversation at his Manhattan office just off Times Square... I asked Jeff if he was now ready to acknowledge that the internet has done more harm than good to democracy. A chill is enveloping the world. Everywhere I go these days, the conversation is the same. Everyone is fearful about the fate of democracy in our digital age. The same worried question is on all of our lips. What or who is killing democracy? Everybody wants to know. There's certainly no lack of suspects. Trump, Putin's trolls, Mark Zuckerberg, authoritarian populism, the wall, Viktor Urban, fake news, Brexit, Bolsonaro, surveillance capitalism, Erdogan, Twitter, or, last but certainly not least, the president of the People's Republic of China, Xi Jinping. So what's up with democracy these days? Is it really dying? Or is it simply shedding its industrial analog skin and updating itself for our networked digital age. That's the subject of this podcast series. This is a show featuring conversations about the most important issue of our age with some of the world's most incisive thinkers. I hope it both provokes and enlightens. No, we're both too old, I hate to tell you, to find out how this turns out. In Gutenberg years, it's only 1475. The first newspaper wasn't invented until 1605. We have no idea what the internet is yet or its impact on society is. But that not that, to be polite, a bit of a cop-out? Because it means we can't talk about anything. It's like, you know, the old Chinese cliche that in the long term stuff happens, but we never know what the long term is. No, we can design the internet. We can worry about the internet. We can find possibilities in it. But we have to recognize that we're still seeing the future in the analog of the past. We still see the refrigerator as the icebox, the car as the horseless carriage. We think that the internet is a medium. It's not. Whereas most people in media see media as a circle and within it are text and broadcast and now the internet. It's the opposite to me. Media is a subset of the internet along with communications and social and finance, parts of finance and parts of retail and parts of crime and everything are being sucked into this black hole of the internet. I also think we're covering the story incorrectly in that we see this as a technology story and it's not. The internet is a story of human behavior. Well, let me rephrase the question. When you and I started our friendly argument 10 years ago in 2007, democracy around the world was in a pretty good shape. There was no Trump, no Erdogan, no Bolsonaro, no Duarte, no Urban in Hungary. Everything seems to have changed over the last 10 years. And I'm not saying we can blame everything on the internet, but is there a connection between this rise of a kind of illiberal populism and the digital revolution, or are they separate things? I don't think we know enough yet. I do think this is the case, that what the internet enables is for new voices to be heard. And those in power who had the monopoly on being heard are threatened by that. And that can come from the internet. It can come from globalization. It can come from a lot of forces that exist. The internet enables Me Too and Black Lives Matter and Living While Black. And it enables movements to start. 
And not always successful. Sometimes those movements can destroy and not build yet. See the Arab Spring. We're still learning what this is and how it operates. But I do think that what we're seeing in the populism movement right now is a bunch of old white men who are threatened. So the populists are old white men. Mm -hmm. They look like me. And they're angry. They have no good reason to be angry, but their anger, their fear of the unknown. That's not robotics. It's the others who are coming in, who are going to steal, in their view, their jobs, their money, their children, their wives, whatever, their status, their power. And we're in a world now of tearing down those boundaries. I think globalization has as much to do with anything, and I think that there's no going back on globalization. Some people argue, many of the people actually have been on this show, that Brexit and Trump and Bolsonaro are manifestations of a healthy democracy. I mean, whether or not you like old white men like you and I, they still have a right to vote, don't they? Of course they have a right to vote, but do they have a right to abuse and manipulate others is the question. What we see going on, I think, is an effort to hold on to power, and in the case of the United States right now, to have a scorched earth policy about the institutions of democracy. The presidency is nigh unto destroyed. The courts are going to be destroyed. The Senate is about destroyed. Other institutions are being burned down because the old power realizes they can't hold on to it any longer. And so it's a last gasp to me. So the good news, bad news here is, is this that last gasp of the old white power, or is this the beginning of the end? Don't know. To introduce our old friend, the internet, what's its role in this? The internet is a connection machine. It enables people to connect with information and with each other, and information to connect with information. And it enables people to have a voice who didn't have a voice before. In my world, in journalism and media, we're still grappling with the fact that in newsrooms, fewer than 5% of staff are Latino, for example. That's shameful. The voices of the entire country are not heard in big old white media. So the internet enables voices who couldn't find each other before, couldn't speak before, to now speak and maybe be heard. Jeff, you and I are talking at the CUNY School of Journalism uh, just off Times Square in New York City. You're a professor here. What, you run the journalism program? I run uh, a center in entrepreneurial journalism. Talk to me about the connection, in your view at least, between what seems to be a crisis of democracy and fake news and the, the spread of propaganda. There is a problem. I'm not sure we're diagnosing the problem correctly. I uh, found the most illuminating documents that I've read on this are the NATO Handbook on Russian Disinformation Warfare and the RAND report on the Russian disinformation firehose. And I'm not suggesting that the Russians are in charge of everything quite yet, but the methods that they use are being shared across. And we see this happening from trolls to spammers to propagandists. I just joined a, this is a long title, uh, the Transatlantic High-Level Working Group on Content Moderation and Freedom of Expression, Read European Regulation. And in there, I've learned a lot in the discussions. And most recently, we had a meeting in California where it was argued, and I now see the point of this, that we shouldn't be trying to go after content. Declaring some content bad and illegal jeopardizes freedom of expression, certainly, in the United States, the First Amendment. We well, mean fake news or just hateful content? Both. That instead, the argument is we should go after behaviors. And the behavior of trying to manipulate the American election, bad. How it's done with memes that might not be fake. They just may be overblown. They just may be nasty. So to try to set the standard as truth is going to be extremely difficult. But if the standard is unwarranted manipulation of public opinion from foreign entities in an election, that's a lot easier to try to manipulate. I mean, try to uh, regulate. You spend a lot of time in Europe. You're fluent in German. What do you make of the 
European attempt to regulate big tech as a way of fixing many of the problems we're discussing? I think most of that regulation has been a mess of unintended consequences. So if you look at the right to be forgotten, as a journalist, it scares me to death that anyone would think of rewriting history or erasing history, especially in Europe. If you look at the Netzdegay hate speech law in Germany, it is forcing the platforms, particularly Facebook, to have to erase anything that Facebook may judge could be illegal within 24 hours or their ass is grass. What this means is that freedom of expression is deeply affected. There's a French fake news law that's ridiculous. There's also new discussion in the UK of this. There's a recent release of the UK online harms report, which I find to be truly frightening because it says that the platform should take down not just illegal content, but also legal but harmful content. Not recognizing the paradox that if the government is telling you that you must take down this legal content, that makes it de facto illegal. In the working group I'm part of, there's a Chatham House rule, so I can't say who does what, but a brilliant member of the group proposes an e-court, an internet court, so that matters of illegality would be taken to that court so that there's due process, there's a public negotiation of legal norms, and there's transparency. Uh, then uh, the French just released a report a few days ago, uh, was done by a member of the, of the working group I'm part of, that I think is actually sensible from France, that says that what they, you regulate is not the content of the social networks, but instead their accountability and transparency. And that I think what the social networks need to do, what all tech companies need to do, is give a covenant to the public. We warrant that we will do these things. We will do our best to try to do these things. We will best do our best to try to be transparent about political ads or get rid of bots or whatever it is. And then government, in the model of the American Federal Trade Commission, can judge each platform on the basis of whether or not it met its warranties to the public. That's the kind of regulation that I could get behind. And then I think the platforms can get behind. But the current view of, you know, Chris Hughes, let's break up uh, Facebook, is an effort to just have punishment for punishment's sake. And by the way, speaking of Chris Hughes, I do tire terribly of the Damascene conversions of the cashed out tech executives from the past. So we're in your office and you've got some headlines from the Chicago Daily News, So Long Chicago. Last edition of the Chicago Daily News. So extra of the Oakland Tribune, people shot down by soldiers in streets of San Francisco, people burned alive. Shouldn't the platforms be as accountable under law as the newspapers? Well, in the, in the United States, these newspapers are not accountable under the law. We have a First Amendment, and so they are protected under the law. Big difference. And I recommend that highly to the world. The Internet in the United States also has a First Amendment of the net, Section 230, which takes away the intermediary liability and gave a safe harbor to the platforms to enable a public conversation. Were it not for Section 230, we probably wouldn't have a Wikipedia. We wouldn't have a Facebook or Twitter, and you may consider the world better for it, but I don't. To enable the public conversation is critical. And what that means, to my mind, is that we are looking at the Internet the wrong way. Again, it's early in Gutenberg years. And I don't think the internet is about content at all. It's about conversation. And a democracy is a conversation. And a democracy's conversation is going to be messy and loud and troubling. And that's okay. But you're not troubled by the conversation on the internet, the overt hatred of minorities, of women. Sure, they, of course, that in some ways reflects the world itself. But it seems to be more and more exaggerated, isn't it? I think it's done for purpose because it gets people's goats. And that's the effort. At the recent meeting of this working group, someone said, use the word, I think that's right, is resiliency. That if you look at people in, let's say, Eastern Europe, they are resilient to fake news. They're resilient to this kind of hate because they've had it for so long. They know how to ignore it. We've got to learn how to ignore it here. And the problem is we do the opposite. Media, 
including journalism, every time they debunk the so-called fake news, they end up spreading it. They do the will of the manipulators. Back in, what was it, 2008, 2009, you wrote a book called What Would Google Do, which was fairly unambiguous embrace of Google as a company and as an idea. Over the last 10 years, you've changed your position on Google, haven't you? Not a great deal, actually. I still think that Google is a fascinating and impressive company. Google, Facebook, Twitter, all the platforms have made missteps, no question about it. But I still think that Google's mission to organize the world's knowledge and make it accessible is uh, laudatory, and I think they do a good job of that. When I wrote the book, I think I was right about most of it, but I did not predict, for example, mobile wars and how Google would become a mobile company and what that's done. I was at Google I.O. last week in California. They talked about taking machine learning models that were 100 gigabytes and reducing them to a half a gigabyte so they fit in an inexpensive phone, which enables in their heartwarming video showing how wonderful they are a illiterate woman in India to point the phone at a sign and have it translated and read aloud to her. These are the possibilities the technologists see, and I still celebrate them. Now, what might be wrong with all of this is probably the same business model that we have in media. The current advertising model based on volume leads inevitably to Katz and Kardashians, to clickbait, and I think leads inevitably to Donald Trump, who was the clickbait candidate. I think we still need advertising, but we've got to change those business models and figure out new models based on quality. Do you buy Shoshana Zuboff's thesis about surveillance capitalism? She was a previous guest on this show. I have not read the entire book. I think surveillance is an emotional word. If we're surveilled by the platforms, we were surveilled when I worked there by Time, Inc. Time, Inc. had more data on you as an individual reader through Axiom and other data companies like that than even the platforms have to some extent. You really believe that? Oh, I saw it. I saw it. I can creep out of class if I go on to Axiom and I can say, I'm going to create a database of women of a young age who live near here, who have a college education, who drive a nice car, and I'll get their name and address. And I can do something about that. This sense of having data about people and targeting to them has been around long before the internet. Time, time could never get into somebody's house through their smartphone, through their smart speaker, through their smart wall. And what's gone wrong with that? The platforms are able, theoretically, or are beginning to do that, aren't they? But what does it mean to get into the house? When television came out, that was seen as a violation. Oh my God, TV speaking to you but right it was the never house. A smart, but it was never a smart device, smart television. So, so good. The television was dumb for a long time. I welcome a, a smarter TV still as dystopian as ever, Andrew. And I'm asking the questions. I'm not telling you what I think. <laughs> you argued that the, so the, the populist backlash against democracy is, is a white male thing. But around the world, it's not just white men. It's Bolsonaro in Brazil. It's Duarte in Philippines. Don't we get, need to get beyond race and perhaps even gender? Is there something more socioeconomic about this? Oh, of course, there's other factors. But point me to the current women of color who are authoritarian fascists. And again, the reason is because people who were in power for pretty much forever now see their power challenged, and they're fighting back, doing whatever they have to do to hold on, including destroying the institutions we hold dear. So they're trying to essentially dismantle democracy. Yeah. You know, I remember when I was a student long, long, long ago, I remember one of the first things that shocked me reading about Nazi Germany was beyond the obvious, but in the early days of the National Socialist Movement, that democracy was a bad word. Democracy was disliked. Whereas, whereas we're used to here, to everyone salutes the flag of democracy. No, no, the Nazis said democracy was a bad thing. We want to get rid of it. And the fascists in the White House are acting like they want to get rid of it too. We're here at CUNY in the middle of New York City. You're training a new generation of journalists. What are you trying to make them do that will empower 
democracy in this country. I tell them every fall I get the privilege of brainwashing the incoming class every fall. And I tell them it is their job to redefine and redesign and rethink journalism. Learn what we teach them, but then question everything, question where it came from, question the money. I started a new degree here at the Newmark Graduate School of Journalism. Named after Craig Newmark, the founder of... Craigslist and our benefactor. In social journalism, which believes that you start not with content, but with the community. And the students there find self-defined communities, observe and listen to those communities, empathize with those communities, reflect those communities, and then begin to understand what journalism to bring. I think journalism has to redefine itself across a few axes. One is that, is, is almost an anthropological view of communities. Another is to build bridges among communities and build bridges for understanding. I redefine journalism because I have tenure and I can do obnoxious things like that. My new definition of journalism is to convene communities into civil, informed, and productive conversation. James Carey, the late Columbia journalism professor, late and great, talked his whole career about society, democracy, and journalism as a conversation. And what the internet enables is conversation. And we're figuring out how to do it. We're relearning how to have a conversation as society. We forgot because media and mass media took away that power from us for 600 years. But now we have it back. And we'll screw it up all over the world. 600, what do you mean? What got taken away 600 years Gutenberg. ago? Gutenberg. I thought he was the good guy. I love Gutenberg. I adore so Gutenberg. So he took something away? But yes, there's a wonderful theory by two academics in Denmark named uh, Tom Pettit and Lars Ole Sauerberg called the Gutenberg Parenthesis, in which they argue that before Gutenberg, Knowledge was passed around, click to cl- I mean, mouth to mouth. It was changed along the way. There was little sense of ownership and authorship. It was about preserving the knowledge of the ancients. Then comes Gutenberg. And now knowledge is contained in a thing called a book that has a beginning and an end, an alpha and omega. Marshall McLuhan would say that the line, this sentence is an example, became our organizing principle. We thought in a linear fashion. We had a business model now, property metaphor with copyright. We tried to uh, honor the current experts. Frau Dr. So-and-so is the author of this book. Now they say we come to the other end of the Gutenberg parenthesis. And now on the internet, once again, knowledge is passed around, click to click, mouth to mouth, changed along the way. Little sense of ownership and authorship. Business model has disappeared for now. And they argue that we are returning to a natural state of things pre-Gutenberg. The Gutenberg was a 600-year exception in society. And what would be the, the model for that? Wikipedia? What are the examples you cite for your students to show how it could work? There's a new little company in California, and it's very little, called Spaceship Media. And they're just one example, exemplar, I think, of trying to do it this way. Their first experiment after the American presidential election, they brought together 25 women who voted for Clinton in San Francisco, 25 who voted for Trump in Alabama. Journalist interviews them all. First day, they're in a uh, private Facebook group. Things are fine. Next day, goes to hell. But then, my friend, the heavens opened and the angels sang because members of the community came to the journalist and said, we're getting in trouble over here. Can you look up some stuff for us? which says to me that they cared about an informed conversation. They wanted facts. They trusted the journalist to get it for them. And what happens is Spaceship then doesn't deliver articles and stories and columns. It delivers what they call fact stacks to help inform their conversations. Mm -hmm. So this is a case where just one small example of the conversation, the public conversation that it needs leading, and we in journalism follow. Ian Bremer was on the show a couple of weeks ago in in terms of uh, coming up with solutions to fix democracy. He said, ordinary people who who don't have your kind of power, you should just go out and talk to people with different opinions. Is that what you mean by conversation? That's certainly a beginning. It's fine. But I think that it has to have a purpose. In communities, we negotiate our laws, our standards, our norms, the allocation of our resources, our laws. That's all the nature of democracy and conversation. 
Otherwise, it's authoritarianism and you don't get to decide. So why bother talking? Your students have to go out and get jobs. So I'm sure they're intrigued by your notion of journalism as conversation. But who's going to pay them to produce this? Well, we started the social journalism program four years ago, and we have, I don't know what the current numbers are, but after six months, I think about 80% are employed. And that's not just social media tools by any means, it's doing things in new ways. So at places like ProPublica in the US, they rethink how to do journalism, how to involve the public in it, and you know our students work there. Do you think that the establishment of paywalls on high-end papers like the New York Times, the Financial Times, the Wall Street Journal, has that been good or bad for democracy? It's a mixed bag. I think for the New York Times and the Washington Post and the Wall Street Journal, those are high-quality national newspapers. They can get away with it. If you have the local daily disgrace in some city across the country that's not very good and they think they can have a paywall, I don't think it's going to work in the long run. I don't think the product is worth it. I think there's a limit to the number of paywalls that we can have. I fear that it redlines journalism just for the privileged. So I don't think paywalls are the messiah we've been waiting for. I think they can help some businesses. I also believe in membership. I worked with The Guardian on their membership program. Has that worked? Yes, it has. More than a million people have given money, and The Guardian, for the first time in, in, history, in recent history, broke even just a few months ago. If you read The Guardian, you'll see at the end of most any article, the editor, Kath Viner, will shame you into giving money after this great journalism. But it's working. It's not the entirety of the revenue stream. It's one more revenue stream. But The Guardian asked its readers, its members, whether they wanted a paywall or whether they wanted were willing to contribute. And what they found was people were not willing to pay for content. They were willing to pay to support the Guardian journalism and make it free for the world. So I think that both of these models live side by side. What's the state of local journalism now in the United States? Local papers, city papers, regional papers, papers outside the major urban centers? Sucky. You see some efforts to uh, develop things. The LA Times has a new owner who's willing to pump money into the paper. LA is hardly a marginal place. Exactly. But I think in lower markets, uh, my old employer, Advance, just sold the Times-Picayune in New Orleans to a competitor that had come in. The new owner laid off the entire staff. There are big issues around local journalism. There are some who believe that only not-for-profit will work locally. I don't believe that yet. I think it's possible to imagine a community-based view of journalism that can work locally. Why did that happen? What were the role of disintermediators like Craigslist in essentially the decimation of local newspapers? It wasn't just Craigslist. It was the entirety of the internet because the internet hates middlemen and leaves money in the pockets of the transactors, not in the pockets of the middlemen. When my father-in-law died 10 years ago, to put a death notice in the paper, it cost $450 because it was a monopoly. It was the only place to read the death notices. We pretty much milked the public in newspapers for everything because we had these monopolies and duopolies. That's what the internet killed. Those who think that Google and Facebook stole newspapers' money, well, God didn't give them that revenue. They offered better deals to advertisers, and that's what happens in a competitive capitalistic market. Let's go all Gutenberg and try to think about the future in a kind of dramatic way. What do you hope will happen after you and I have gone away when we can't continue arguing about these things? You keep on saying, well, the long term is Gutenberg. Maybe you're right, but speculate. Speculate about 50 years or 100 years time and the nature of the digital revolution on democracy, if it still exists. I don't know. This is the only honest answer I can give. I think the most hubristic and ridiculous job title on earth is futurist. But you've been in the business of talking about the future, or at least using the past to imagine the future. And understand the past better by the contrast we have, which is what I think we can do. 
So my friend David Weinberger, who I think you know as well, who's uh, at Berkman Center at Harvard, who wrote some wonderful books. He just has a- The Clue Train Manifesto. co-author of Clue Train Manifesto, which was the seminal work of internet culture in 1999. His new book out, just out right now, is called Everyday Chaos. In it, he argues, it's not just the internet. In it, he argues that machine learning and AI, and even A-B testing, which the platforms love, proves that oftentimes with the right data to be better at predicting behavior than we humans can. That pulls a rug out from underneath us journalists who think we can explain the world. And what it says is, the algorithm says, this behavior is going to happen. It'll reliably predict that, but it can't explain it. And the notion that the world could be more inexplicable than we think could at first be frightening. I think we're headed toward a cognitive crisis in, oh my God, I don't really understand the world as well as I thought I did. But then I think that the benefits of the technology will be harnessed and will be seen as useful. If we kill each other less on the highway because of self-driving cars, if we can predict and find disease more easily, if we can make more money in markets, if we can manufacture things more efficiently, then there'll be benefit that comes down the line. Is all that automatically good? No, I'm not a technological determinist. I don't think it goes either way. We do have to manage it. We do have to figure it out, but we will. We figured out the printing press. We figured out steam. We figured out the telegraph. We figured out broadcast. We'll figure this out. But you sidestep my question. I was asking about democracy. I still have a fundamental faith in the intelligence and goodwill of most of my fellow men and women. And I think that there is a cycle there. What I don't know is what happens to our institutions, including the notion of the nation. Gutenberg helped establish the notion of the nation. When a nation could find its words in print and could define itself around a language that was now standardized, it gave them an identity and borders or as part of that process. And what if now the idea of the nation is challenged? What if wars can be held with data without, with no armies and no gunpowder? What if currencies can be set with blockchain? What if boundaries become difficult unto impossible to defend? I can imagine a lot of disruption. I was at the, at the uh, journalism festival in Perugia recently and debated with a German regulator. And I tried to joke, it turns out I shouldn't have, I tried to joke that after Gutenberg, sure, we went through a 30 years war. We may have a 30 years war. Well, evidently, it's still too soon to joke about the 30 years war in Europe. We may go through considerable strife. We may go through considerable disruption, considerable efforts to defend turf and institutions and tear down institutions. But again, in the end, I think our self-interest will figure it out, and we may have to reinvent democracy, but democracy is still the best system we have, and I think it will reemerge. I really think, ultimately, you're a cheerful pessimist. I'm a grumbly optimist. What are you? (laughs) I'm laughing. I I am a a cheerful pessimist. You're a miserable optimist, then. Maybe. English people tend to be miserable. (laughs) Uh, Cheerful optimists. Americans tend to be miserable optimists. Is that a fair... Cultural generalization? Uh, sure. We're both white men now in declining years. Is that fair? Yeah, we are. We are. And it's time to decline. I have here my Kamala Harris hat for the president. Is she your... She's my current. Yes, I think that she's really good. And I think it's time to stand behind candidates. We had a great field of women, people of color, LGBTQ candidates. And then along came this army of white men who thought they had to mansplain the election. And I'm fed up with it. What you mean, Mayor Pete and all these other... Well, today, Mayor de Blasio, Joe Biden, Bernie, speaking of all white men, one after another, the egos of the white men coming in, uh, I think even in the Democratic Party, afraid of being displaced by a woman or a woman of color is um, striking. You're listening to Keen on Democracy with your host, Andrew Keen. 
Hello, I'm Jason Sanderson, the producer of the show. Now we're about to take a quick break while we hear from our sponsors. But please stick around as Andrew will be right back to conclude this episode with his five takeaways. Hi, my name is Steffi Czerny and I'm the founder of the DLD Conferences. DLD is short for Digital Life Design and explores how the digital age fundamentally changes our world. Founded in Munich in 2005, DLD is now a globally connected community of thinkers, doers, and communicators. We host conferences in Munich, New York, Tel Aviv, Singapore, and Brussels. And we are very proud of our interdisciplinary outlook and even more so of our track record of discovering trend topics early on. Andrew Keen is a long-time, long-term DLD friend who has done many interviews at DLD conferences. If you like this podcast, you should join one of our events. Our motto for this year is optimism and courage. We want to put a really positive spin on recent technological developments from AI through blockchain to quantum computing and discuss which impact they have on business as well as politics and society. Visit our website at dld.co and apply for your ticket. Thanks so much for sticking around. Now here's Andrew with his five takeaways from this interview. As I said in my introduction, Jeff and I have spent the last 10 years debating the merits of the internet. And whilst we don't always agree, the tone of our conversation has always remained civil. Perhaps that's what he means when he defines democracy as a conversation. Jeff is right, I think, to describe this democratic conversation as both loud and messy. But democracy would certainly be in a better state if our conversation on social media could somehow combine this loudness and messiness with a degree of civility. And that, of course, is why good journalism is so essential to a viable democracy. Jeff's definition of journalism as a conversation, which he is pioneering at CUNY, is the kind of innovative approach which I think we need. What he seems to be doing is rethinking journalism so that it can educate communities into civic discourse. We are relearning how to have a conversation, he says about the journalism students he's training at CUNY. And these students will, I hope, come out of CUNY able to provide what Jeff calls the fact stacks to educate communities into having civic discussion. So what to make of Jeff's point that it's too early to judge the impact of the internet, what he calls a connection machine on democracy? It's an interesting position. Yes, he's right to compare the historical significance of the digital revolution to Gutenberg's 15th century invention of the printing press. And he's right to underline that the disruptive impact of this technological revolution lasted several centuries. But that doesn't mean we can't make a judgment now in the early stages of the digital revolution. In the long run, we're all dead, Keynes quipped. So it's important to have a conversation about the impact of the internet on democracy now, while we are still alive. Jeff's analysis of populism as a rebellion of old white men who are threatened by technological change is intriguing. And given that he defines the internet as the medium that enables new voices, 
of movements like Black Lives Matter and Me Too, it, the internet that is, is by definition progressive. The problem with this argument, however, is that reactionary old white men like Steve Bannon and Donald Trump are actually very skilled at using the internet to build their movements and distribute their messages. What I really don't buy is Jeff's focus on gender or racial identity as the essence of democratic renewal. At the end of our conversation, he proudly waved his Kamala Harris cap as a kind of adieu to the rule of old white men. But I fear that this descent into a kind of identity politics will actually corrode democratic conversation. After all, if we are essentially defined by our genders and our race, then what kind of conversation will we really all have? Not a very civil one, I fear. Now, we've got a real big favour that we need to ask. If you like this episode and you've been enjoying the other interviews, we'd sure love it if you headed over to the iTunes podcast app and leave us a review. If you'd like to hear more episodes, there's a subscribe button there and in all of the platforms like Spotify, Overcast and Google Play. So head over to one of those, subscribe, leave us a review, share it with your friends if you like, and we'd appreciate it so much. Be sure to check out our next episode, and from all of us at Keenan Democracy, we hope you have a fantastic day. Next week, we learn how to lose a country. The brilliant Turkish journalist Eke Temelkuren will lay out for us the seven steps that lead from democracy to dictatorship. I hope you'll join me then.